Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Aaron, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood. And as Jake said, today we get to finish up our series in the book of Colossians. And to begin, I want to invite you just to do something really simple with me. All right, just kind of sit up for a second. Everyone, just take a deep breath in. Just let it out. And listen. You hear that? That's the calm before the storm. What storm, you may be asking? The political storm. You realize that next year, 2024, is a presidential election year. And already, politicians are posturing and getting their name out there and positioning themselves to declare their candidacy and drum up as much support as possible. I don't think I'm ready for this. All right, I'm, you're probably going to need to pray for me. Because one of the tactics so many politicians use is this. They paint the picture of their opponent as basically being the spawn of Satan. That if you vote for them, you may as well just let Satan have foothold in the White House. And, and D.C. is going to fall apart. The fabric of America is going to rip apart. And so we cannot let that donkey or that elephant get in office. Otherwise, we may as well just set off an atomic bomb. I remember years ago hearing about some politicians who were on opposite sides of the political aisle going golfing together. Or they might, uh, you know, do dinner together. Or I even heard of two families that went on a vacation together. Even though they were politically opposites, they still had friendship and respect and could go and do a vacation. I don't think we see that anymore. Because you cannot risk your constituents back home finding out that you converted with the enemy. Because, I mean, God forbid you might play cards with them or go bowling with them, or even walk into the same grocery store as them, because they are evil. They are the enemy, and we need to have nothing to do with them. Now, this is not just happening within the halls of Congress or, you know, in the streets around the Golden Dome in Des Moines. This is being pushed out to the general population. We, we see it and hear it on podcasts, cable news, social media. Like it, it's at the point where you can no longer even talk with someone on the opposite side and have a civil conversation because to do so gives them respect to their message that they don't deserve. And so we must shame them and yell at them and just treat them like absolute trash because, I mean, after all, they are. The, the, the problem, though, is it isn't just happening in the political realm. It, it, this kind of discourse is now transferring over into multiple arenas. Though that we cannot have a conversation of respect and civility with someone of a different faith or, or a different church. We, we cannot even possibly have any sort of civil conversation with her because of those stickers on her water bottle or with him because of that bumper sticker on his truck. Now, as a pastor who uh, is vaguely aware of what's happening in Christendom, I see this happening within the church. I, I hear it happening on social media. I hear it in the podcasts. That, that if, if someone, even so much as says something, oh my goodness, you cannot say that. It, it, it's at the point where if your church 
does not sing the right songs, wear the right clothes, vote the right way, hold my exact position on race, hold my exact view on women in ministry, does not believe exactly as I do on speaking in tongues. If they even are different, they are heretics. They are the enemy. And therefore, it is my responsibility to declare prophetically how wrong they are and everyone needs to say absolutely far away from them. Now, I am not saying that we need to just all shed ourselves of any sort of beliefs, any sort of convictions. We should all just stand around a global campfire, hold hands, and sing Kumbaya. I was going to say uh, it only takes a spark, but uh, then that song will get stuck in your head for the rest of the day. But we're, but basically I'm trying to say that we should still hold our convictions. However, the mission that God has given to his church is way too big for one church or one denomination or one tribe of Christianity to accomplish it. In order for us to see the gospel cover this globe and everyone have every opportunity to hear the life-changing message of Jesus, it is going to take a huge wide swath of Christianity. Today, as we get into Colossians 4, we are going to see a huge wide swath of people. We are going to see a wide variety of people, and yet we're going to see how they are able to come together because of Jesus and because of the gospel, they are able to partner together to spread this amazing, beautiful, life-changing, powerful gospel message to the world. To see it for yourself, I invite you to open your Bible to Colossians chapter 4. Open your Bible one last time to Colossians. If you uh, did not bring a Bible, we will be putting the scripture on the screen because we really, really, really want you to be able to study and read this right along with us. I just believe that your learning is deeply enhanced if you have a Bible in your hands. Now, at Riverwood, we are fine with digital Bibles. So if you have a Bible on your phone, feel free to pull that out or download one to your Bible and use that. Or if you want to go old school like me and get a paper copy, stop by our resource table and uh, pick up one of the translations we have back there and then that, make that your everyday Bible. So you can use it not only on Sundays, but any day and every day of the week. Uh, as we get ready to read uh, from Colossians 4, we, uh, by the way, we did verses uh, 2 through uh, 6 in our gospel growth series uh, in week 3 of that series. So if you want to go back and catch that, you can go to uh, that. Uh, I think it's our third week in January. So that means today we are ready to pick it up in verse 7. So as we get ready to read, let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, as we uh, get ready to conclude this book of Colossians, I thank you so much for the powerful truths we have seen through this book in this past year. And I pray that the things that we have heard would be a big, big part of us and that we truly would be Jesus-centered people. But Father, today, as we uh, look at this last section and we hear all these various names, that we might see the way you use a wide variety of people and that we are honored that we get to be a part of that. But help us, Father, to not so much as demand everything done our way, but rather we'd want to understand your way, what you are calling people to. Lord, help us to figure out how to walk that, that uh, fine line of grace and truth, to, to hold to the convictions that we think your Bible teaches, but to live with the grace and humility to realize we might be wrong. Father, we want to follow you, not just our own way, our own system, our own preferences. We want to let you be God, you to be in control of your church, and you to lead and guide her to be who you call her to be. And we are a part of that as a church family. 
So Father, I pray that you'd help me to teach today with accuracy and clarity, that it would be in line with your word and your scriptures, and uh, that we would each find ourselves so thankful for what you are doing globally through our brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they come from different churches than us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, you may be thinking, oh great, I'm catching the very end of a series. Uh, well, first of all, you're not going to feel out of touch, all right? I think there's still stuff in here for you. But also that means some good news. It means that you could join us next week when we start a brand new series. We're going to study the book of Acts. And I think today is a great like, preparation for the book of Acts. Because when we get into Acts, we are going to meet a lot of different people. And I mean a lot. So today is a little bit like preparation, a little bit of like exercise, getting ready for that. Because today, Paul introduces us to a wide variety of people. So start with me in verse 7 of chapter 4. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. I give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. That very last verse there, verse 18, uh, you may think it's just Paul, you know, signing off. We sign our letters sincerely, and then we put our name. But typically, in uh, Paul's day, most people were not used to writing. They didn't feel comfortable writing. And so to write a letter like this, they would actually go, like, maybe down to the market, and they would hire a professional scribe. They would dictate the letter out loud as the scribe wrote it all down. And many of Paul's letters were written this way. Occasionally, even some of the authors, like, insert their own name in there. Oh, hey, by the way, I also say hi. But Paul wants them to know this really is coming from him. And so at the very end, he takes the, the pen from the individual, dips it in the ink, and he writes on there, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I want to say hi, grace to you. In other words, he's verifying everything he just said, saying, this really is from me. Hear it, believe it, now live it out. Well, one of the things we heard him say back in chapter 3, verse 11, we saw this back in November uh, last year. He says, hear meaning here in the gospel, here within the church of Christ, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. In other words, Paul is saying that it does not matter if you are a circumcised Jew or an uncircumcised Greek. 
God loves you. Jesus died for you. You matter to him. It does not matter if you are free or in slavery. You matter to God. In fact, he even says, it does not matter if you are a barbarian, someone who doesn't even speak the beautiful language of Greek. God loves them. He's for them. Jesus died for their sins. He says a very similar thing back in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, but he adds on one more category, that of gender. In in Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. To Paul, this is not just a theological concept. This isn't just some Christian utopia he hopes to see someday. No, this was something that Paul was getting to experience. Something he was living out. And we see it in the conclusions of Colossians. So what I want to do today is I want to use this verse out of Galatians 3.28. I want to use this as kind of our template. And I want to show you how all of these categories are revealed in the people he mentions. So let's first start with the Jew. uh, Paul mentions three Jews over there in Colossians 4 in verses 10 and 11. Aristarchus, Mark the cousin of Barnabas, and Jesus who was called Justice. The reason we know these three men were Jews is he says this in verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, as a good Jew, had been circumcised on day eight and had been raised within Judaism. And in Judaism, to reveal your covenant with God, a male had to be circumcised. Well, when Jesus comes along and dies on the cross for our sins, it created a question. Do you just put your faith in Jesus or must you also be circumcised? And so this was a big battle in Paul's day. Paul came to the conclusion because of what God had put on his heart that you did not have to be circumcised in order to enter into this relationship with God. It came only through Christ. But there were those who were so opposed to that idea that they thought he was basically trying to ruin and wreck Judaism. And so that's part of why he's in prison in Rome. They'd had him arrested. They tried to, you know, try him, put him on trial. And eventually he has to appeal to the Caesar. And he, now he's in Rome writing this letter. But not all of the circumcision party was clearly against Paul. Some of them actually agreed with him. Primarily at least three. Aristarchus, Mark the cousin of Barnabas, and Jesus called Justice. Let me just point out a couple of things about each of these guys. Uh, First, Aristarchus. He describes him as a fellow prisoner. That may be true. Maybe he really was put in prison for some of the same reasons as Paul. But more likely... Paul is in under house arrest, all right? He's not locked away in a cage somewhere. So he's in under house arrest where people are allowed to come and go. We hear this at the end of the book of Acts. Well, as Paul is able to entertain people, perhaps Aristarchus believes so much in the ministry of Paul, he chooses to stay there with Paul to make sure he's fed. You know, maybe he's like a secretary, manages his schedule as people are coming. Maybe he's helping, you know, find the scribes. Maybe he is one of the scribes. We don't know. But it seems more likely he's choosing to be with Paul and thus is sort of like a fellow prisoner. The the next guy I want to point out is the third guy mentioned, Jesus called Justice. You may think it's a little weird that uh, a dude was named Jesus. I mean, isn't there just one Jesus? Well, Jesus was a very common name in that day. It was simply the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, 
Well, a lot of parents want to name their kid after the great leader, you know, who came after Moses, Joshua in the Old Testament, but they give them the Greek version, Jesus. Well, perhaps out of reverence for the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus decides to not go by his Greek version of his name. He decides to go by the Latin version, Justice. But then the third guy mentioned is Mark. And I've saved Mark for last because Mark, we're going to meet him in the book of Acts. And I kind of like Mark's story. We meet him in the book of Acts and he's known as John Mark. And when Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to head off on one of their missionary journeys, Barnabas is like, hey, let's take my cousin. So Mark comes along with them. But on the trip, Mark decides, this is too hard. I don't like this. I miss home. I miss my food. I miss my girlfriend. So he ends up hightailing it back to Rome and abandons them. Well, eventually, Paul and Barnabas end up back in Jerusalem. And, and while there, they reconnect with Mark. And they're getting ready to take off on another missionary journey. And Barnabas says, hey, Paul, let's take Mark again. Paul's like, no way. The dude is totally unreliable. We cannot trust this guy. Barnabas is like, but Paul... God forgives us of our sin and mistakes. We need to forgive him. After all, I am Barnabas, the son of encouragement. So come on, let's just include him. Paul's like, no. The book of Acts tells us it became so contentious that the two actually split ways. Barnabas grabs Mark and they head off on their own missionary journey while Paul partners up with Silas and they head off to continue to spread the gospel and plant churches. So I absolutely love that Mark is mentioned here at the very end. Because it means that Paul has forgiven him. There's other, another place in scripture where Paul says, Mark is helpful to me. Here, he's considered an encouragement. As Mark matured and grew, he became a beneficial partner in the gospel to, to Paul. So much so that Mark eventually went on to write the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Mark. So there's three, at least three Jewish people that we see mentioned uh, in here. All right, how about Greek uh, before I point out uh, uh, one of the, the Greeks mentioned here, I, I want you to realize that when Paul uses that term Greek in Colossians 3.11 as well as in Galatians 3.28, he just simply means Gentile. All right? It's a non-Jew. It's not just someone who's from the country of Greece. Right? When I was uh, working at an English-speaking camp in the Czech Republic, uh, the church I was on staff with, we had an uh, uh, English-speaking camp mainly for business leaders that our church did every year. And uh, the leaders of this trip wanted more young adults to go. And so I, as the young adult pastor, was invited to go so I could see it and then try to recruit more young adults to be a part of this. So we, we travel over to the Czech Republic. Um, they didn't trust me to teach English to those who were lower speaking. So they, they gave me the higher speaking people. At first I thought I was really honored. And then I found out that like, well, no, the people who are kind of the weakest in English teach the higher classes. So I'm teaching the higher, highest class. And one of my uh, students uh, is telling a story about her and her boyfriend and how they uh, ended up in this big argument. She goes, yeah, that's because we're Italian. And she keeps running on going. And I'm thinking, oh, I have no idea she was Italian. And then I think she could kind of see the surprise on my face. She goes, oh, no, 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 I'm Czech. It's just that if anyone in the Czech Republic has kind of a loud personality and they argue about all sorts of things, they're called Italian. Well, likewise here, if you're not Jewish, to many of the Jews, you were just Greek. Because Greek was the language, the universal language of the day. So even though they're living under the Roman Empire, Greek was the language that people spoke. So if you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile, or you could be called Greek. One of the most prominent Greeks we see in this is listed right there in verse 7, Tychicus. 
We meet Tychicus actually in the book of Acts chapter 20, where we discovered that he is from Asia. Now, before you start thinking he must be Chinese, in Paul's day, Asia was like modern day Turkey, but he would have not been a Jew. And yet, do you see how Paul describes Tychicus? He describes him as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. The word there for servant is the same as what we saw last week when we were studying uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. It's this word doulos. It can mean servant, more likely bond servant, someone who willingly assigned like one of those seven-year contracts to serve as a slave. Tychicus, though, is not a slave of any earthly master. What Paul is saying is that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. But there's a, it's, it's not truly just the word doulos. He, Paul tacked on a little uh, preface to it, and it means fellow servant. In other words, Paul is saying, I too am a slave. My master wants me in prison in Rome right now because it's from here I'm able to write these letters to encourage the church, many of which then get collected and become our New Testament. It's also the place where people can come and visit him so that he's not out and about. People now know how to come and get to Paul and he can disciple them and share the gospel with them. And so he sees that even where most people say, like, oh man, that's horrible that you're in prison. Paul's like, nope, this is where my master wants me. But just as the master wants Paul in prison, the master wants Tychicus to do a role. Tychicus is bringing this letter to the church in Colossae. That was part of his role, the way he's helping to spread the gospel. I believe that Tychicus is actually carrying three other letters. He isn't just carrying the letter to the church in Colossae. He's probably carrying a letter to the church in Ephesus. These two letters are so incredibly similar. He mentions here in chapter 4 a letter written to the Laodiceans, so I think that's another letter. Some people believe that is the letter for the uh, Ephesians, um, but other scholars say no, so I, I think there's actually another one. And then there's a letter written to Philemon. I believe Philemon was written almost exact same time, and I'll explain why here in just a, a little bit, but I believe Tychicus is also carrying that letter. So he's carrying four letters. If Paul was racist, like many of his fellow Jews were, looked down upon the Greeks, there's no way in the world he would entrust this important role of carrying these letters that share the gospel, that remind them how to follow Jesus to these four different entities. But to him, he's not just a lowly Greek. He's my beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He is my fellow servant. Speaking of servants and slaves, the next person I want to point out to you is a slave. In verse 9, we meet Onesimus. Paul describes him as a faithful and beloved brother. So much like he did with Tychicus, but do you know what's missing? It's fellow servant, slave. That's because Onesimus is a slave, or at least a runaway slave. You heard me talk about those four letters that Tychicus is carrying. One of those is to a guy by the name of Philemon. When we read the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, we discovered that one of the people carrying it isn't just Tychicus, it's also Onesimus. And we find out that Onesimus used to be a slave to Philemon, but he ran away. He probably had signed one of those seven or 14-year contracts, maybe reached a point where I can't do this anymore, and he hightails it out of there. 
But somehow Onesimus finds his way to Rome, ends up meeting some Christians, possibly even Paul himself, hears the gospel, gives his life to Christ, is being discipled, and now as part of his discipleship, as part of his like owning up to life and consequences, Paul sends him with Tychicus back to Philemon. But in the letter to Philemon, Paul says, Philemon, you owe me your life. I shared the gospel with you. You came to know Christ and you now host a church in your, your home. I now need you to not treat Onesimus like a runaway slave. One of the punishments could have been death. Usually though, they want more work out of them, but they would just make them sign another contract and be really harsh with them. But Paul is saying, don't kill him. In fact, don't even just welcome him back as a slave. Welcome him back as your brother in Christ. So we've got to meet a Jew and a Greek, now a slave. What about the freemen? Well, most everyone else here, as far as I can tell, are free. Uh, let me point out a couple of them. In verse 12, we meet Epaphras. Well, actually, we don't meet him here. We actually met Epaphras all the way back in chapter 1. In verses 7 and 8, we heard that it was Epaphras who had brought the gospel to the church in Colossae. A lot of scholars believe that Epaphras was from Colossae, ended up traveling to Ephesus, about 100 miles away, lived and worked, and while there, here's the gospel through the church that Paul planted. After several years of being disciple and growing, Paul takes off on a missionary journey. Epaphras has this sense he's supposed to go back home. So he travels to Colossae, shares the gospel, and a church ends up being planted. Perhaps he pastored it for a while, and then he has this opportunity to travel to Rome. He gets to Rome, and he tells Paul all about this church that, that started in Colossae. That's part of why Paul gets so excited and ends up writing this letter. And he, and he sends it with Tychicus because Epaphras, one of the Colossians, had come and been there with him. But what I want to point out is, did you notice how he also called Epaphras a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus? I find it interesting that with the freemen, like Paul himself, Tychicus, Epaphras, he calls them slaves. But the actual slave he says nothing about it. It's almost like Paul is wanting to say to the freemen, okay, yeah, you're free in this world. You don't have an earthly master. However, if you've given your life to Christ, you have a heavenly master. Yes, you are the son and daughter of the most high God, but you're also a bond servant, willing to give your life to follow him and do whatever he calls you to. But to the slaves, he doesn't call them slaves. They already know. He wants to remind them you are free. You are freed from your sin. You are free from this, these things. So yeah, you may have an earthly master to serve, but that's okay. God doesn't look down upon you. You are free. It's like he finds such delight in pointing out how God flips the entire economy. Where, where we think being wealthy is, is the one, most wonderful thing, and the scriptures teach, no, 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 being wealthy sometimes is harder because you miss what God wants to do. Sometimes being poor in this life is actually better because you're way more open to be able to receive from God and depend upon him. What better place to be? So with Onesimus, the slave, he drops the title. But for Tychicus, for Epaphras, no, these are my fellow servants in Christ. Another free man I want to point out to you is Luke. We meet Luke down in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. I just want to point out Luke to you for a couple of reasons. First, he not only wrote the gospel that bears his name, he also wrote the book of Acts, the very book we are about to go and study. But I also point him out because it says that he is a physician. 
Now, like our physicians in our day, he would have been very well educated. Apparently, there was a, a big medical school in, in Hierapolis or Laodicea, which were near Colossae. So it's possible some of these people in the Colossian church know Luke personally. That's probably why he's sending some greetings. But while he was highly educated, he was not at the top of the social status. It, it turns out that physicians were hired like slaves. They would be hired by someone really wealthy to be their physician for the whole family, for all of their servants. And so Luke most likely served at least one seven-year term as a slave to some wealthy family. Now, we don't believe he remained there. In the book of Acts, which he wrote, we see how he joined up with Paul and traveled around some. If he was a slave, there's no way he is able to travel. So he must have completed his time as a slave and has now become a free man. So we've met Jew and Greek, slave and free. How about male and female? Well, the male part is quite obvious. Almost all these guys mentioned are men. But there is one female mentioned. We meet her down in verse 15. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. All right, so this is not someone who's in Rome with Paul who's sending their greetings to the church in Colossae. This is now Paul and the people with him saying, hey, we want to greet you guys. Also, while we're sending these greetings, please spread our greetings to these other people, these brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha. Now, to be fair, I need to point out that there are some Bible translations that do not consider Nympha a female. They consider Nympha male. Because it turns out that in Greek, by the way, I am not a Greek scholar, so I'm having to rely on other tools to help me understand this. But there is an accent mark that if you put it in one place, the name becomes female. If you put the accent mark in a different place earlier in the name, it becomes male. Well, there are apparently some biblical manuscripts that have the accent in the first place to make it male, whereas others have it in the, the later position. So why the difference? Most of the, the more reliable uh, manuscripts have it in the second position, making Nympha's name female. That is why probably the majority of the Bibles in the room have referred to Nympha as her. So why would some have it as him? Because it's very likely that there were some scholars who believed because, because Paul is dictating this letter that the person he's writing to put the accent mark in the wrong place. Because elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul talks about the role of women in ministry and says, in a sense, that that role of elder, of pastor, is reserved for men. So some of these scribes probably thought, oh, well, then I guess that this must not be a female, this must be a man, because it says, greet Nympha and the, the church in her or his house. Well, if that's her house... Well, that would make her the pastor of the church. We know that they can't be pastors, so therefore it must be a man. Now, I am thankful that there are translations that say, well, these are the more reliable manuscripts, so we're going to go with that and we'll say her, even though it creates a bit of a quandary within this. If Nympha is female, that means it did not matter to Paul. He knew that females had spiritual gifts that God could use them to find and follow Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to talk a little bit about complementarian, the idea that men and women are, are complement one another and, and so therefore should ser serve each other in ministry. Or egalitarian, that all levels of, of ministry leadership are completely equal and available to everybody. 
But if Nympha is female, and the fact that Paul is sending greetings to her is saying, women have a role in the kingdom of God. God can use them to help others find and follow Jesus. So we see Paul talk to Jews and Greeks, slave and free, male and female. They all matter. They're all used by God for the spreading of the gospel and the spreading of the kingdom. So therefore, because Paul knew that Jews and Gentiles could work together to advance the gospel, we as a church need to be a place that is willing to participate with other Christians of different tribes, different languages, different viewpoints. Because Paul was willing to to work with slave and free, we need to believe that God loves all people and he can use them regardless of their age, regardless of their education level, regardless of their income, regardless of marital status, regardless of whatever other demographic category you want to create. And just as Paul is sending greetings to both men and women who are partnering together in the gospel, we as a church need to be a place that can partner with others in the advancement of the gospel, regardless of their viewpoint on gender. Now, with that said, this does not mean we cut back on any convictions. Like, well, it's okay. Uh, Back in 2019, when we were uh, getting ready to establish elders, I did a three-week series on uh, what it means to be an elder. We walked through several different passages in Scripture, and I showed how my conviction is that the Bible teaches that that role of pastor-elder is for men. And yet, I shared at that time, which I will share again, that if I had my way, it would be completely open. It would not matter whether you're a man or a woman. Spiritual maturity and calling and gifting would be all that matters. And so, while in my heart, I want to be an egalitarian. I think it's where we're at culturally. It's where I I want to be. But I have yet to be 100% convinced from the scripture. Now, I I feel like the argument here in Colossians, that's a pretty good one. But we still have to wrestle with some of these other passages. And so I'm still in this wrestling. And and so because of a conviction, we're still what would be called a complementarian church. And so I tell people that, okay, we may be a complementarian church, but we're going to do anything and everything we can to look like we're an egalitarian church. Because God has created women, gifted women, and we want God to use them how he's called them. But we realize we might be wrong. If, if God can show me from the scriptures where it's not complementarian, that we need to be egalitarian, I'll do it in a heartbeat. Because I realize it's not about my way, it's about God's way. And so if God convinces me, then I will do it if that's what I believe the scriptures teach. But at this time, I'm still not 100% convinced. But to me, it's not a salvific issue. God will not give you an entrance exam at heaven saying, were you complementarian or were you egalitarian? Answer correctly, otherwise you're out. It's Jesus. And so because it's all about Jesus, we are going to seek to be as open-handed as we possibly can, which is why we are able to partner with churches who differ with us on this, and we do not look down upon them because of it. We do not think they are worse than us or even the enemy because they have a female pastor. Because if they're trying to spread the gospel and they understand the work of Jesus on the cross, they're our brothers and sisters. 
and we want to work with them. We've got to stop acting like the culture around us and try to shame or mock those who see it differently than us. Instead, we need to see that God can use them just as much as he can use us. I mean, after all, in the book of Genesis, God speaks to a prophet through a donkey. If God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through me, he can speak through you, he can use any of us. And so let's walk this with humility. Let's, let's seek the scriptures, let's hold our convictions, let's do what we believe God's calling us to do, but let's do it from our knees and not from a place of position and authority and, and it's absolutely my way. So that means if there's a church that will only sing hymns that were written before 1600 and yet they love the gospel, they love Jesus, they love people and they're willing to work with us, we'll partner with them. This is what's allowed us to partner in the, the Waverly VBS every summer. There's usually three or four churches that say, hey, let's come together. Let's do this for our community. We originally started doing it because we were way too small to try and pull something off like that by ourselves. And so it, it was a huge win. Now as we've grown, could we maybe do it ourselves? Yeah, we, we possibly could. And if we did, would we do it differently? Yeah, there'd probably be some things we'd do differently. And yet, it's such a win to get to work alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ in helping kids hear about this Jesus who loved them so much he left his throne in heaven to come to earth, to take on human flesh, to live a uh, fully human life, and yet die in the sinner's place. So it's worth it, even though we're working with some people who have convictions differently than us. It's why we can participate in the Waverly uh, Food Pantry. Even though there's other churches there who, who do things differently than us, it's okay because they want, they're doing this because of Jesus. It's why we participate in the Waverly Benevolence Fund. A number of churches contribute into that. It's, it's because we seek to be open-handed on so much of this. It's also why we last year participated in the Citywide Good Friday service. Yeah, a number of us there, we have different ideas of how to go about doing ministry and, and, and how things should be done. But we realize, but we all have Jesus in common. You see, this is, Jesus is way bigger than just us. If Jesus is for the Jew and the Greek, if he is for the slave and the free, if he is for males and females, then who are we to go about trying to think it has to be done exactly our way? Let's walk in humility. Let's seek after Jesus and let's point people to him. And as he works in us, maybe some of us will end up realizing we've changed, we've gotten this wrong, and so we walk in humility. So yeah, let's, let's hold to our convictions. Let's, let's seek after truth, but let's walk in grace. Let's be like Christ. Let's seek after him and help people realize it's about Christ. Because as we're going to see in the book of Acts, Jesus and, and, and God the Father are absolutely passionate about this gospel spreading around the globe. If we're going to see that happen, it means we're going to have to work with a wide swath of Christians. And I think we may actually find some joy in it. So Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for this concluding passage from Paul. Uh, that what uh, so for so many of us is a skimming type of material. We just see a bunch of names that we don't know how to pronounce. We don't know their stories. We don't know anything about them. And so we just kind of ignore it. 
I thank you that you've embedded truths here that can help us to live Jesus-centered lives and to be able to enter into these Jesus-centered partnerships. And God, as I so often pray, if there is anything that I said today that was not of you, I pray that you would just lovingly correct my mind and my thinking so that I could be who you call me to be as a pastor, that you would allow us all here to forget those sort of things and to, to pursue you through your word. It isn't just about what one person says, but it's about what you have said. But God, the things that were of you, may those stick with us. May we, we walk out of here just fully convinced of not only your heart for us, but your heart for the world and how you are even working in others who see things differently than we do, who might practice things a bit differently than we do. And yet they want you, they long for you. Father God, this leads into so many sticky situations. There are so many questions we have. So I thank you, Father, for some of the confusion, for a little bit of the fog, because it forces us to have to seek after you, the light, because you are what matters. So, Father, I pray that's what we would walk out with most of all, that you, Jesus, are for all. You're for the Jew and the Greek. You were for the slave and the free. You were for the men and the women. You love us, you died for us, and you can use us. So help us, Father, to put our full heart and attention upon you, even as we continue to try to seek and understand how you work through these differences and which differences matter and which differences don't. But God, help us to be the kind of people who don't treat others like they're some sort of enemy. Our wrestling is against that which is not flesh and blood, but against those principalities, against those spirits of darkness. Instead, help us to see that the people on this earth, they matter to you. May we value them like you do. May we seek after you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to invite you into a time of communion, a time of just seeking after God, thanking him for Christ, the one who went to the cross to die for our sins, the one who gave his body, shed his blood so that you and I could be forgiven. If you're a first-time guest here and uh, uh, are not a follower of Jesus, I'm just going to ask that you very respectfully not go to these tables. These tables, it's all about Jesus. And if you're not quite sure of this whole Jesus story, then there's no need for you to come. It's not that we're trying to keep something from you. It's that we believe God has something for you. We want you to spend this moment to talk to God. Ask him, is this all true? Is there really a, a God who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him in his life, his death, and his resurrection would not perish but would find eternal life? If that's true, would you take this opportunity to give your life to him that you would become like a Tychicus or an Epaphras or a Luke whose lives were radically changed because of this gospel? But even if you're a first-time guest here and you do know this story, you know what Jesus did, this matters to you, then I invite you to come. This table is open to you. This is for anyone who understands this gospel message and they have put their full faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. So as you take those elements, may you hold that bread and realize that represents his body broken for you. As you open up that cup, realize that juice represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. May this be a moment of worship. May this be a moment of thanks. May this be a moment of confession. May this be a moment of us committing ourselves yet again to follow the God who loves us. May we do this now in remembrance of him.